turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to talk today about how Christian hope causes you to become spiritually awake. And what better time than when the world is falling apart and you lost an hour of sleep last night? Very appropriate. We're going to look at two paragraphs that need to be held together, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a new church in the ancient cosmopolitan city of Thessalonica who are wrestling with questions about the future, questions that many of us wrestle with today. So with that, we turn to the text. I'll read these two paragraphs and then we'll pray together and invite God to speak to us this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety... Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts with conviction as we receive your word today. As you instruct us and remind us about the truth of the return of Jesus Christ. That we would find ourselves being awakened. That we would find ourselves longing to draw near to you. And to take up all the responsibilities you've given us in the present. 
We ask if there's anyone here today who does not yet know you, that they would come to know you today. And for those who have drifted from you, would you draw them near? And for all of us, that we would be, as your word says here, awake in a relationship with you. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, the British-Irish comedian famously said, Spike Mulligan said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I suppose that captures the way that many people think of death in particular, or perhaps the future in general. There are a lot of those who face the future with fear and uncertainty. And that highlights one of two errors that we must avoid when we think about the future. One error is to never think about it at all. Never think about death. Never think about what would happen tomorrow. Never think about the implications of the future. People cope by simply avoiding it, not talking about it in conversation. Listen to the common message of our culture, which is seize the day, live for the moment. The only thing that matters is now, and you max out your credit cards and just live your best life. That's the advice we're often given. That's one error that we are to avoid. Even as the church, there are some Christians who don't think about the future. That is an error. But there is also another error to avoid, especially for the church, and that is to only think about the future. Because on this other hand, there are some Christians who think so much about the future that they might appear completely disconnected from the present. When we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, unfortunately, there are some even comical ways that some Christians have spun the second coming that actually go against the very teachings of Jesus himself. Even though Jesus clearly said of his second coming, no one knows the day or the hour of my return, there are some people who have taken it upon themselves to predict it. And some of them live in basements and they create websites with bad clip art and end times Bible calculators so that you can know the exact date of his return. There are two errors that we must avoid. One is to live only in the present, never thinking about the future, never thinking about death. But the other error is only thinking about the future. But the truth is, the two go together. Our expectation about the future impacts the way that we behave in the present. And this morning, I want to tell you from this passage that Christian faith gives you hope like no other. To put it simply, Christian hope for the future does not weaken, but strengthens your life in the present. Whenever the Bible is talking about the future, it is not only to give you hope for the future, it is to give you purpose for the present. Now, why is that? Well, there are few passages that illustrate why Christian hope is unlike anything else in the world, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Think of it like the greatest hits collection of Christian hope. And from this passage, I want to highlight 
why this hope is unique, and why every one of us needs it. So what are those reasons? Well, under the first heading, it's this. Christian hope is personal. Christian hope is personal. Now, before I read chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, the backdrop to this context is helpful. We have a new church in the city of Thessalonica who's concerned about people who have died. And Paul addresses their concern from the perspective of Christian hope. And when he does, it is profoundly personal. I say that before we dive into the text itself because many people that we talk to, many of our friends in this county, in this state, when people talk about death or when they talk about the end, it's usually vague and impersonal. It's like Lion King circle of life type stuff. Like we're all going to become a part of the cosmos. But I suppose children are the most honest, aren't they? I heard uh, recently of a seven-year-old who lost their cousin, asked their mother, well, where is my cousin now? And in typical fashion, though I might say NorCal fashion, she replied by saying, he's gone back to the earth from which we all come. Your cousin will fertilize our flowers. But the child, in a moment of honesty, said, I don't want him to be fertilizer. Isn't there another option? (laughs) That's not how the Bible talks about death. That's not how the Bible talks about the end. In fact, when the Bible talks about death, death is not viewed as something vague or even positive. The Bible calls death an enemy. In the Bible, death is an enemy. It is a cause for us to grieve. Why? Because death was never a part of God's plan when he made this world and made us. Death is the result of brokenness. Death is the result of separation from God. Death is a result of what the Bible calls sin, rebellion against our creator. And that means that if you put all of your trust in what you can find in this life alone, what hope do you really have? But, Paul says here, if your hope is in Christ, it is radical and it is beautiful. And to our point here, it is personal. For the believer, death will not have the last word. Look at what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We learn from the context that their ignorance, these men and women in Thessalonica in this new church, their ignorance about death was causing them to grieve without hope. But Paul writes, reminding them in verse 13, since you've believed the gospel, even though some of your Christian friends have died, you don't need to be concerned about their eternal safety. You have a great reason for hope. And what is his reason? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross for sin. 
But the good news doesn't end there. Jesus rose again on the third day. What we think about is we're leading up towards Easter season. And if that is true for Jesus, then this will also be true for all who trust in him. You too will be resurrected. So then he goes on to the implications. Well, wait a minute, Paul, they might ask. What about believers who already died? What about believers who died in faith before Jesus Christ returns? Or to use Paul's phrase, those who have fallen asleep. Well, Paul says, far from being left out in regards to the resurrection, they will lead the way. There was a concern among some, wait a minute, if they die now, do they not get resurrected? There was confusion. And Paul is addressing this with clarity. Now, to be clear, to clear up any more confusion, Paul is not here talking about the soul going to sleep. This passage does not teach soul sleep. After all, Paul says elsewhere, speaking of death for the Christian, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you die in faith, you will be present with the Lord. But that moment will precede the time that there will be a bodily resurrection. So to be clear, those who die in faith, those who die trusting in Jesus Christ, they will be with him. And on that day Jesus returns, they will actually return with him. And then there will be a bodily resurrection on that day when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. And he brings an end to evil, suffering, sin, and death and brings renewal in the world, which is what he describes there in verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede, speaking of resurrection, those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul, here with a collection of beautiful images, describes the return of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, the command there is in the Greek a military term, which denotes authority. And then there's this language of, of the, the trumpet sounding, which was historically used in the Jewish community to gather the congregation together. So people who were familiar with the Old Testament narrative would know that when Paul's using that image of a trumpet call, it meant that it was a community event. And in that moment, the people who have trusted in Jesus Christ will be caught up, or the Greek word there is raptured into the clouds. The clouds there represent the presence of God. Now you might say, what is the meaning of all these details? They're delightfully, you know, beautiful, but they're also a little vague. Like, what do they mean? Let me give you an absolutely simple explanation. All of this taken together means the second coming of Jesus will be obvious. That's what it means. It will be obvious. 
You cannot miss it. There will be authority and a clear call and a, a, a bringing together of the Lord's people that will be absolutely obvious. So Paul summarizes the return of Jesus for his people and the resurrection of his people. But with the briefest of details. And if you're like me, you want the details. Like, wait a minute, what kind of trumpet? What is the tenor and timbre of said trumpet? But friends, I just want to point out that Paul's emphasis here is not on the details of the second coming, nor on the sequence of the second coming, but the outcome of the second coming, the result of the second coming. And what is that? Well, contrary to what these men and women in Thessalonica feared, the dead and living will be reunited, and most importantly, they will be reunited with Jesus. The key word, friends, here is together. We will be together with the Lord. As Paul points out elsewhere, resurrection is to be made new, yet without the effects of sin in glory. But this is a glory that we share together. Friends, one of the reasons that the Christian hope is personal is because it is relational. We will be with the Lord together. Here's why I make that point and believe it is important that I do. There are many people in our culture when speaking of continuing on after death, they talk about it in very impersonal terms. Whenever the afterlife is spoken of by people as they speculate on, you know, television shows, in books, and on YouTube or whatever, it's usually in this very vague, impersonal existence. And one of the examples that was often used when I was growing up in NorCal is like a drop of water to the ocean, we will all return to the universe. <laughs> and as a kid, I was like, that sounds terrible. That sounds like a bummer because that drop of water actually loses its individual nature. So oftentimes when people are trying to grasp like what the future might be like, people speculate and when they do, it's usually this kind of impersonal existence. But you know what that means? It means there's no such thing as love in the future. Because love requires persons. Love requires individuals. And that means that we actually lose what many people think is most valuable, which is relationship, if that was true. But thank God, that is not the case. The future is relational. Christian hope is personal. When Jesus Christ returns, we will be caught up with him and we will be together. Because at the very core of Christian hope, is this relationship with Christ and relationship with one another. It means that our greatest fear, which is separation, will be a fear no more. That's why the commentators call this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, the ultimate reunion. And it won't be like your high school reunion. No separation from God. No separation from his people. 
And that is all because Christ is risen and Christ will return. Christian hope is personal. The future is relational. But you might say, Pastor Man, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do right now? I'm so glad that you asked because that leads to my second point. Christian hope is personal, but secondly, Christian hope is practical. I want you to notice as we turn the corner to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that Paul's focus is practical. Beyond explaining end times events, Paul focuses on end time ethics. That's where Paul's emphasis lies. Because there is a huge connection between your daily decisions and your expectation about the future. Paul makes it very clear, showing how practical this news is, with both a warning and an encouragement. And the headline is this, friends. It's not about the details of the calendar that's important when it comes to the end times. It is about your character. Remember that. It is not the calendar of events that Paul is focusing on here. It is the character of your life that concerns him. Look at what he says. Don't disconnect the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 with the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5 because he anticipates that they might have questions about the timing. But he says in verse 1, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you for we know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here's the warning. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And here's the encouragement. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. In contrast to the concern they originally had, the real problem, Paul says, is not over those who died knowing Christ, it's those who are alive who do not know Christ. This is Paul's concern. And so the day of the Lord is a call for urgency. The day of the Lord is a phrase that refers to that day when Christ will make himself perfectly clear to the world and wickedness will be punished and God's people brought into his presence. So the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus, same thing. So in light of that, there's this warning and this encouragement. And the warning is this, a false expectation about the future will lead to wrong living in the present. It's essentially what he's saying. A false expectation about the future will lead to wrong living in the present. If you do not think that you will need to give an account of your life when you breathe your last or when the Lord returns, then you will be most certainly surprised when you do. It's like my friends recently who came into an inheritance, they bought a house, they were so stoked, but they didn't factor in the tax. 
right? It's like, oh, if you had, on, on the one hand, like, yes, we can afford it. And then they calculate the tax and they're like, oh no. See, this is why I teach my children about taxes early. Whenever they have ice cream, I take two bites. And it's called daddy tax, because I'm a good dad. I'm like, I want you to know what it's like to live in California. So I'm gonna take half of your ice cream. That, that's another sermon. Those who have a wrong expectation, they might think everything's going well, but they didn't factor in that they would have to give an account for their life. Paul's words here describe how many people are living right now, and it might even be you. People who are saying, like in verse 3, peace and safety. You might say, nobody's saying that right now. Have you read the news? Well, of course, everyone understands urgency going on in the world, but surprisingly, when most people think about their own individual lives, they acknowledge that the world might be going mad, but they think themselves they're good. Yes, there's war or whatever, but if I die, I'm fine, right? Drop into the ocean, all good, cosmos. Paul says, those who say peace and safety are the ones who are saying, don't worry about it. I don't need to give an account for my life. And if that is you, destruction will come upon you as a surprise and there will be no escape. Whatever temporal security you might find in a job, friendships in this life alone, or even entertainment will make no difference in the end. And he uses two striking metaphors to highlight this. A thief coming in the night and labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. What do they have in common? They are two events that are outside of your control, outside of your planning. Two events that don't hinge on whether you're ready for it or not. And if you're not ready for the end, there will be no escape. He goes on in verse 4 to describe this as walking in darkness, an attitude which he also describes as being spiritually asleep and intoxicated. And this walking in darkness is very often captured in this attitude of no one will see, I don't have to give an account for my life, it doesn't matter. But this is all based on a false expectation of the future. So Paul gives a warning. As we should warn others, there is a day when you will give an account for your life. That's the warning. But there's also an encouragement. And to those of you who do not yet know Christ or have drifted from him, hear the warning so that you might receive the encouragement. And what is that? Well, if a false expectation about the future leads to wrong living in the present, then a true expectation of the future will lead to right living in the present. That is to be, in contrast, fully alive, fully alert, fully awake, ready for that day. But you, Paul says down in verse 4, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. 
And Paul goes on, of course, to give several descriptions of those who are ready. He says, verse 6 through 8, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Notice the language he uses. It's so rich and powerful. First, he uses identity statements. If you've trusted in Christ, you are children of the light. You are children of the day. And that's a powerful image because light in the Bible is often used to describe God's character. It is often used to describe the truth about God's word. It's often used to describe the illumination that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts so that we might receive God's word. To know the light is to know what is true. Light and truth therefore, are often used interchangeably in the Bible. But it's all a contrast with darkness. Darkness is untruth. Darkness is deception. Darkness is a lie. And it's in that context of darkness that we see the value of light. Just like headlights on a car at at night can steer you away from danger and keep your eyes on the direction you should be going, God's light, God's truth can steer us away from danger. His light can show us how we are to live, the path that we are to walk in, a God who loves you, who protects you, and exposes you to what otherwise might trip you up. And so like a light in the dark, you can find your way. To be asleep is to live as if these things are not true. Just like a person who is asleep or drunk will not be alert or ready for an emergency, we are to make sure that lies and untruth do not leave us intoxicated or unprepared. Christians, we are not children of the night. We are children of the day. And therefore, we should not act as if we are asleep. And what a tragedy it is when Christians live as if they are asleep. Charles Spurgeon used two powerful images in one of his famous sermons to drive this point home of how tragic it would be that people who have the message of hope end up falling asleep amongst people who have no hope. He says, like a passenger ship reeling under a storm that is about to crash on the rocks and bring near certain death to hundreds of passengers, all the while the captain is asleep. What a tragedy. Or a prisoner in his cell, he says, is about ready to be led to his execution. His heart is terrified at the thought of hanging from the gallows, terrified of death, and what awaits him after death. And all the while, a man with a letter for his pardon and innocence is asleep in the next room. What a tragedy it would be if the people who have the message of hope are living as if they are asleep. No, Paul says, don't live in that way. 
verse 8, we belong to the day. So practically, what does that mean? Well, in this context, darkness means moral indifference, carelessness, not listening to the truth. And the opposite, to walk in the light, means we take great moral care and concern. We think about the choices and decisions we are making looking to make sure that the word of God is directing the way that we live, the attitudes of our heart and the choices that we make in life, the witness that we have before the people that we work with, the family members and friends that we have. We are to give careful thought, knowing that Jesus will return, we are to give careful thought that we're walking in accordance with scripture. And Paul uses this powerful imagery of armor to drive home the necessity of being prepared. He says, put on armor just like you're ready for a battle. That armor imagery communicates self-control and readiness. But I suppose that leads to a question. You're like, okay, I get it. Jesus Christ is going to come again. I need to give careful thought to the decisions I make, make sure I'm walking in accordance with the Bible and not just throwing off, you know, moral care and concern and just living according to my own desires. But how can I really be ready? How do I know that I will be ready? And even as I thought about that question this week, I was reminded of a true story in the year 1833 when a young boy saw something tremendous happening in the sky and he ran out frightened and said, the world is coming to an end. The stars are falling. Thank God I'm ready. <laughs> what he saw on that morning in the year 1833 was one of the most significant meteor showers in the last few hundred years. It wasn't the second coming. But in that moment, what did he say? Thank God I am ready. How can we be ready? That leads to the last point. Christian hope is personal. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, a great reunion. Christian hope is practical. It's about how we live our lives now, taking great care and concern to live in light of God's word. But to fuel all this, you need to know that Christian hope, this promise of what Christ has done and what he will do is powerful. Now, why is it powerful? You see, a lot of religions will teach you something about the afterlife. They all kind of disagree. But they'll teach you something about the afterlife. But they have one thing in common. It's always on a condition. Any world religion will say, yes, there's an afterlife. But if you want to get there, you've got to tick a couple of boxes. You've got to make sure that you do certain things. And in this kind of framework, with all these world religions... If this is the case, if you've got to do a certain amount of, of deeds, your life will ha have anxiety and uncertainty if you're doing badly or not doing them at all, or you're going to be arrogant and prideful when you're doing good. So how can you be certain about your future, but humble at the same time? Only the twin truths of Christ's death and his resurrection and return can make you radically confident, but also radically humble at the same time. Why? Because it's not based, this hope is not based on what you can do. It's based on what God has done and what he will do. And so Paul ends in verse 9 through 11 saying, 
For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So to the question of, well, how can I know I'm a child of the day? How can I know I'm a child of the light? Where where can I find the, the power to walk in light of God's word? Well, he anchors it. He grounds it all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not based, this hope that you can have, that when Jesus Christ comes, he will come for you, is not based on what you can do. It's based on what God has done. And friends, I want you to notice, look at what Paul says in verse 9. Paul doesn't say, for God might not appoint you to wrath. That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, if you're good little boys and girls, he might not appoint you to wrath. Because let's be honest, when some Christians talk about the second coming, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Like, oh no, when Jesus comes, like, how do I know I'm going to receive wrath or salvation? Well, where's your trust? How do you become a child of the day? How do you become a child of light? He anchors all of his instruction in the truth of the gospel. See, this is why Christian hope is so unique and so powerful. Because there are many people who are living right now who are perfectly happy, but they're not expecting to give an account of their life. They are not ready. But there are also, let's call them religious people, who are aware that they've got to give some kind of account for their life but they're following their own rules. They're trying to measure up to their own standards, but it's not perfection. It's not in accordance with God's law, and they'll never know if they're going to be good enough. And if they're trusting in their own good works, then they also are not ready. What makes you ready is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is what makes you ready. Trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This hope that we have in the second coming of Jesus Christ is not for good people. It's for people who trust in Jesus Christ. If your trust is in Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for your sins and rose again to make you accepted before God, you are not appointed to wrath. Why? Because Jesus took the wrath you deserve when he died on the cross. Therefore, you are not appointed to wrath. You do not, if your trust is in Christ, need to fear condemnation. You do not need to live with a question mark over your life. Why? Because Paul says in verse 10, Jesus died for us. See, Christians do not approach death and the future thinking that they are worthy but knowing that Jesus is their worthy Savior and that he's given us hope as a gift. It's an important point to make because when we talk about the imminent return of Jesus Christ or a coming day in which we will breathe our last, whichever comes first, can sound like one big test to pass, an examination It can almost sound as if I'll be rejected if I don't score high enough. 
But Paul is not here teaching sinless perfection. He's teaching Christian readiness. Because, of course, we will fail. There will be times when we do fall and we do not do what is right. Being awake and being ready does not mean we always get it right. But it means when we discover that we are wrong, we are quick to confess and to repent. And the good news is that we can. We can confess, we can repent, which is turning from sin. We can receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and be made clean, continually forgiven, continually renewed, continually cleansed. And that is what it means to be ready. Even our repentance is a sign that we are awake. So, how can I be ready on that day? Well, the answer is to be ready every day. How can I be ready on that day? The answer is to be ready every day. To be spiritually awake in a relationship with Jesus now. So, are you near to Jesus this morning? then stay near to him. Continue to follow his words. Do not let anything that is happening in the world or even concern over the future deter you away from what God has called you to do now in light of the future that he has promised. If you're near to him, stay near. Continue to draw near. If you're here this morning and you've Never known Jesus Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him because tomorrow is not promised to you. Are you ready to give an account of your life? Well, the only way to be ready is if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus today and you will be ready. And for some of you who have drifted Just slowly but surely other things have become more important than your relationship with Christ. Draw near to him through confession and repentance. Draw near to him. Friends, too late are the worst words you could ever hear. But if you're hearing this right now, it is not too late. So if you haven't yet accepted Christ, receive him today as your savior. If you're far from him, draw near to him. Being ready means being spiritually awake in a relationship with the risen Jesus, trusting in what he's already done for you, knowing that he will come again. That's the gospel truth. Jesus died. He rose again. The tomb is empty. We don't believe in a dead Jesus. We don't believe in a dead Messiah. Jesus is glorious at the right hand of the Father and he is going to come again. He's going to set all things right. He's going to renew his creation. He's going to put an end to sin, Satan, suffering, and death. And living in light of that is like putting on a breastplate and a helmet in a broken world. And what does a breastplate do? What does a helmet do? armor saves you through substitution. That's why this image is so powerful. Armor saves you through substitution. The breastplate or the helmet takes the hit that would otherwise kill you 
on your behalf, in your place, so that you can live. Friends, that is where you can ground your hope because on the cross, Jesus took the one hit that could ultimately destroy you. That is the weight of your sin and guilt. Jesus took that punishment. Jesus took that penalty, the one thing that could be the eternal nail in the coffin. Jesus took the penalty upon himself when he died and rose again so that you could have hope and live with him and his people forevermore. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, do it today. Do it today. And if you have, take up those truths like your armor right now because it protects you. It protects you. If your trust is in Jesus, you will not be fatally pierced by anything in this life. You will not be fatally crushed by anything in this life because Jesus is your substitute. And that's why Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church with, might I say, ancient trash talk, he says, where, O death, is your victory? It's like, what? If there's a Greek word for what, that's it. Where's your victory, death? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good news. If you know and trust in Jesus, you can be ready for that day, whether you die or he comes again. And if you are ready for that day, you can be ready for anything that comes on this day. Amen? So right now, we are not only going to reflect, we're going to rejoice. I'm inviting you to rejoice right now as we confess our sin, receive his, his forgiveness, celebrate communion, pray. We are going to sing our hearts out because Jesus is alive. He is our hope and he is coming again to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is not a nice idea or a philosophy or, or a, a, a myth. It is true. Jesus, you died and you have risen and you are coming again. And we pray that you would cause us to become fully alert and awake to these truths here and now by following you and giving attention to the work that you have called us to now. We pray for those who do not yet know you that today would be the day of salvation for them that they would put their faith and trust in you right now, that even from their chair, whether they're joining us online at home on a sofa or watching on their phone in a car, whatever, I pray that right now they would say, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day. I believe you are my risen Savior. You are my risen hope. And I pray for anyone who's just drifted over the last weeks or months or years, maybe for some, it's the first time in church for them in a long while. I pray that you would draw them near and that we would find all of ourselves here rejoicing in the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would put courage in our hearts to live as children of the day and children of the light. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul spoke of the communion elements in his letter to the Corinthian church, and he said, when you take communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
So right now, taking communion, if you're a Christian, I don't just invite you, I'm calling you to take communion this morning. As you confess your sin, this is a tangible reminder of the finished work of Christ. And as sure as you're eating that bread and it's physical and it's real and you're drinking the cup and it's physical and real, it's a reminder that your resurrection will one day be physical and real because Christ's resurrection is physical and real and he's coming again. So this is not only a time for us to confess, which it is, it is also a time for us to rejoice. And we take communion and say, I confess my sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you've forgiven me. And I am celebrating. I'm holding this cup with hope because you're coming again. And that's where my trust is. That's where my hope is. So I invite you to come forward today and worship and to sing your hearts out and to take communion, remembering Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And there are men and women who are going to be up here on my right and to my left. They're going to be up here with the prayer lanyards. They're here to pray with you and for you. So if you need encouragement, come. If you need healing, come. If you need guidance, direction, wisdom, strength. Maybe you're just hopeless in a certain area of your life. Just come and pray and watch what God will do. And let us all find ourselves just worshiping and rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. I invite you to come down to the carpets. You can get on your knees and lift your hands, but let us sing to our risen, not dead, our risen Savior. Amen? Let's do that now.